Podcast where we talk about deviant women from history. Hi, oi! I was already saying the word history and literature and mythology. Hey, see, and contemporaneity, where Lauren says all the words and interrupts you. <laughs> it's true. And uh, how are you this week, Lauren? Oh, look, I'm better than I was. My back is getting better, so that's good. I've moved into a new house, so life's coming together. How about you? <laughs> that's all right. Um, I've developed a goiter. Good. So. A self-diagnosed goiter, though. Are you trying to suggest? Are you trying to suggest that I just, like, looked at a bunch of symptoms on the internet and then decided I had a goiter? I mean, I'm not suggesting it so much as... Is that what you think what of me? happened. Yeah, that is what happened. <laughs> Look, hey, you very well might, and you should go and get it checked out. Look, I've, I've had a blood test. Good. So by the time we come back... You know whether weeks, or not, indeed, you have a goiter. I'll report back on the goiter symptoms. Good. And I'll let you know. Keep everyone updated. because <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> everyone is keen to know about whether or not that's true. Yeah, anyway, so here we are once again. And uh, this time around, we're going to be delving into some <sighs> contemporaneity. It's a contemporary issue that is, look, this is not going to be a, f- a fun laughing no if you're in the mood for some lols and ditch out now i know that we often bring the lols we are <laughs> renowned for our yeah, comedy yeah. prowess but this is not going to be one of those episodes this is actually the hardest episode that i've had to research mm. and i am working on another episode that i've been working on for months which is another <laughs> very difficult episode to research but this one is particularly hard and it's particularly hard for a lot of reasons Mm. that I think, should we just get... Well, I suppose, yeah. So the reason we wanted to do this particular episode now, I suppose, is because there's been a lot of stuff happening in the current climate here in Australia that, you know, as usual, makes us pretty furious, makes us pretty angry, makes us want to speak out. So for those of you who don't know, if you're not from Australia, we know that many of you are listening from other countries around the world, and you may have heard a little bit about this, but we know that your countries have your own shit going on, so maybe you didn't. (laughs) Basically, quite recently, a couple of weeks ago, a young woman named Eurydice Dixon was murdered. She was walking home through a park at night, and she was murdered and raped in a really horrible attack that has had a lot of coverage in the media and there's been a lot of commentary that has arisen from that attack regarding gosh so much stuff about women's safety women's situational awareness and I suppose basically a lot of these issues about the role of men and the role of women in determining our own safety Mm. and you would think in 2018 we wouldn't have to find ourselves here once again yeah. With these same concepts, these same ideas, these same issues that recur over and over again. So we were quite moved, as the rest of the country obviously has been, but we were quite moved to um, want to actually talk today a little bit specifically about some of the, I suppose, campaigns and ideas mm. and movements that have built up in the last few yeah. years around these issues. And so... 
we were talking about it. We decided that we'd do that for yeah. this episode and then um, I made Lauren do it. <laughs> so we are going to have a biography this, this episode. I want to talk about Tarana Burke, who is the woman behind Me Too. And I know that what happened with Eurydice Dixon... There's been a lot of conversations about, like I said, about the safety issues around women, women's responsibilities, and I say that within quotation marks, for their own safety, and the anger that a lot of women feel about the fact that, once again, as per usual, the police response to this murder is that women are the ones who need to be aware Following um, Eurydice's murder, Superintendent David Clayton warned all members of the community to, and I quote, take responsibility for your safety and make sure that you have situational awareness. 24 hours later, Homicide Squad Detective Inspector Andrew Stamper repeated this, saying people need to be aware of their own personal security. That's everywhere. If people have any concerns at any time, call triple zero. We would rather have too many calls than too few. But of course, this kind of language reinforces the fact that especially take responsibility for your own safety. One of the things that happened, if you're not aware of the story, is that just before her attack, Eurydice had sent a text message to a friend telling her that she was nearly home safe. She was doing the right things. She, mm. she had situational awareness. Mm. And yet, mm-hmm. and yet, yeah. because of course the problem isn't her actions. It's not the fact that she was walking home alone, which she should have every right to do. And yes, it was a park and yes, it was nighttime, but she worked, she's a comedian. She worked at night. She's got to get home. What are her other options? Take a taxi? Well, you know what? Women get raped in taxis all the time. Go home with some guy. Women get attacked by guys they go home with all the time. Would she have been safer in her own home? No, because the vast majority of attacks that happen on women happen in the home. So it doesn't matter what fucking situational awareness she had. If he didn't attack her, he would have attacked somebody else. If she had done every single thing right, which women are mentally doing all the time, it just simply would have been another woman who was murdered. Someone was going to get murdered. And that's the thing that, sorry, that fucks me off so much about these conversations is because women carry the burden for awareness 24 fucking hours a day from a very young age most women are conditioned to have this mentality and it's always this concept that we have to constantly be on guard yeah at all times and we find ourselves in this situation again once again where the rhetoric around yet another horrific attack comes back to women Inevitably, it's our fault. Mm. There's something we didn't do. Somewhere along the line, we didn't follow protocol. And, of course, this is rhetoric that constantly occurs. Rather than, of course, the rhetoric of, well, who actually does need to take responsibility 
for their actions here? Is it women or is it predatory men? Yeah. <laughs> so this is actually, I want to quote. So Elizabeth Flux is um, a writer and editor in Australia and she posted this on Facebook and I want to quote it. She said, situational awareness is not enough. We're already doing it. Situational awareness is why I always lock my car doors the moment I get in. Situational awareness is why I always choose the more well-lit side of the street. Situational awareness is why I avoid doorways while walking alone. Situational awareness is why, whenever I can, I walk opposite to the direction of traffic because I was taught this is a way to safeguard against getting pulled into a vehicle. Situational awareness is what makes me weigh up the pros and cons of taking any given route because there is no 100% safe way to travel. Situational awareness is why I always choose where I sit or stand on the tram so that my exit route is never blocked. Situational awareness is what made me reluctantly give my phone number to a man who cornered me at a lonely train station because there was no one else around and I didn't want to risk angering him. Mm. I say that one with a lot of emphasis because Mm -hmm. I have done that more more than one time. Situational awareness is what made me and a girl I'd never met bunched together on the street outside a pub not saying a word when we saw a man yelling and walking in our direction. Again, Who of us hasn't done that? Situational awareness is what makes friends ask each other to text when home safe, even though you know it's a pointless exercise. It's reassurance that this one night it worked out okay. Situational awareness means we know that home isn't any safer. Situational awareness is why I always have my hand on my phone when walking home. Situational awareness is what made me pay for a taxi when it was only a short walk. Situational awareness is what made me ask the taxi to pull over next to a 7-Eleven many blocks from my house when he started asking creepy questions and I got that bad feeling. You know the one. Situational awareness made me debate whether I should then try to get another taxi the two blocks from the 7-Eleven to my house or risk walking down the dark street. Situational awareness meant that my doors were locked, but it didn't stop the man who came right up to my car to scream at me over a perceived slight. Situational awareness is why I had triple zero pre-dialed as I saw him approach my car, even though I had no idea that I would be able to report without sounding foolish. (laughs) Situational awareness made me report this man to the police in case he did it again to someone else or escalated. They told me they couldn't do anything. Situational awareness is putting a band-aid over a cracked dam. We need to look at solving the bigger problem. So I know that was long, but it was also a list, a really amazing reminder of the constant, 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 constant situational awareness that women carry Mm. that I think men are completely oblivious to. Yeah. Completely oblivious to. Yeah. And you know what? Something that I feel very conflicted about right in this very moment of recording this episode is the fact that I know that we're already talking to the converted. Yeah. This is a closed circle, this conversation that we're having. Yep. And we know that you, our listeners, are probably on board and you probably know this. And we probably don't even need to be doing this episode because you already know everything yeah. we're talking we about. I tell you this shit. And I bet that because the podcast is called Deviant Women, there's probably 95% of our listenership are women. Because men don't want to listen to women talk about shit. Men don't want to listen to women talk about women. That's the two things. You can't talk about women and, God forbid, you listen, you to, listen women. to women. Yeah. So we're talking to a closed circle. Yeah. And this is the fucking problem. This is the problem. And I don't know how to – sorry, we're getting emotional. We're both getting emotional. I don't know how to overcome this problem. So, yeah, that's why we're doing this episode – we're screaming into the void. Yes, that, that's it, isn't it? Because it does feel like we are constantly screaming into the void. I suppose, though, that this is why 
in trying not to let ourselves fall into a bottomless pit of despair, this is why we can look to or talk about these kinds of movements that have grown up in, I suppose, in the recent sort of zeitgeist to actually try to say just that are screaming but Mm. hopefully screaming into something (laughs) somewhat less of a voice well this is maybe well maybe this is a good point to bring in our focus today yes who is a woman named tarana burke yeah because she is someone who has screamed into the void (laughs) and then the void started listening and something really 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 amazing happened in october last year and i'm sure that everybody knows what happened in october 2017 i'm sure we don't need to remind you of what happened in october 2017 of course i'm talking about the sudden virality of the me too movement but i'm not sure how many people know about the woman who is responsible for the me too movement or her history and her work with survivors of of sexual assault so that's who we're talking about today, and the reason that we're doing it is because we feel very angry and very helpless. Very angry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, but I would just like to say I appreciate Lauren taking the lead on this, and uh, I appreciate your uh, angry, angry, angriness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> I, yeah, sometimes I just can't even speak. So. Yeah. Well, this is actually. I honestly, I thought about it, and then you, when you texted me and were like, "We should probably do an episode about this," and I was like, "Yeah, we." We should. I don't want to because I don't want to. Because as soon as you start reading about it, it just, it's paralyzing how angry I become. Literally paralyzing. So this was really hard work. Yeah. I had to do it in dribs and drabs yeah. over Actually, a long time. And you know what? I think it's worth, worth talking about what we were just talking about before as well. That sense of talking to a closed circle, that sense of talking to the converted. It's also like Lauren and I were just talking before about, I was saying about how often. I think about this shit. I'll say that how often I'm like standing in the shower and mm. I just start having an argument with an invisible person yeah. about all the injustice yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and how angry you, you get yeah. and how you spend so much of your time having these arguments and debates with people no who aren't in, people who aren't in the room. No. no one is in the room. And I'm not, and I have to and be I'm, honest, I'm, I'm, not, sh- I'm not brave enough to take it to social media. I think all of these thoughts and I would love to be the person who's brave enough to tweet it or to post about it, but I don't because I'm not brave enough. But this is, I guess we're doing this But instead. we're doing this. <laughs> but of course there are, as we said though, there are yeah. so many women who are fighting the good fight. Yeah. And the focus of the episode that we keep trying to get yeah. to, but that we're also probably a little bit too angry to focus But I think that attention. it's important that we kind of – establish that to begin with because this is not something that has come from nowhere this is something that affects everybody and this is another all the time like it's it's not something that so you know we were compelled to do this particular episode because of a particular thing that happened just recently yeah but as that quote you just read out before is testimony to is it's actually something that we think about all the time time. 24 hours a day and we were out last Friday, Friday night. night we were out and I had to catch the train home and then I had to walk home from the train yep. station and it's exactly that same thing it's that and we're I all you know texting each other yep did you make it to yep. your train you know did you get let to me know when you get home precisely did you get to your car yep and like, it's like are you home safe yep it's like because we're just trying to live our lives yeah but at the same time dare you leave the house <laughs> This kind of whole idea as well about, you know, the danger that we take when we go out into the world. Oh, you're taking your your life into your hands because you bothered mm. to leave the house. 
but also, of course, something that I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about in this episode as we get along, but also, of course, this whole idea that you're probably in more danger yeah. at home. Exactly. Most <laughs> most violence against women happens in, in close home. circles, in domestic situations. And this is something that has definitely I've been thinking about in the wake of Eurydice Dixon's murder is the fact that I think it had such an enormous media like the media has been overtaken with this story. First of all, I want to point out that I want to acknowledge the fact that as a white woman, she's received probably a lot more media attention than she would have were she not a white woman. I think that's really important to acknowledge that because there was another woman, and I do apologize if I don't pronounce her name correctly, Yu, a 28-year-old woman. This was in New South Wales. In Sydney, in Mm. Sydney, Southwest. She was murdered um, the same week. As Eurydice. And Eurydice, so Kiyu was in Sydney and Eurydice was in Melbourne. Yeah. I don't know if we specified No, I don't think that. we said that, mm. no. So that's the first thing that I wanted to acknowledge about that. And the second thing is, of course, this murder has received so much media attention, but the reality is that a woman is murdered in Australia by a man every week. In 2017, I think 55 women were murdered by men. And that's probably that's probably quite low compared to other countries it in the is. world. You, because you know what the number for the US is for 2015? Look, I, to be honest, I ran out of time to find a 2017 stat, but the la- most recent stat I could find was from 2015. 1,600 women. What the f- fuck? I know that per capita, is, I don't know what yes. that works out to. Much um, larger yes, population. Yes, we have a population of 26 million. They have a population of 300 and something yeah. million. 1,600 women murdered by an intimate partner. A third of women worldwide have experienced, and I want to say this, this is reported, like women who are willing to admit or are capable of understanding that what has happened to them is sexual assault. Don't get me started on this particular... Well, no, do get me started on this because that's what we're here for (laughs) today. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, this is exactly the thing is when you you have these conversations with people who quite often are like, well, why didn't they report it? Why didn't they say something? Which is, of course, what's come out of the Me Too movement as well is this idea of, well, why didn't you say something about it? It's like, are you fucking... Yeah. Are you just stupid? Are you fucking stupid? Do you want to know the reasons why women don't report things? Do you want to know what it feels like to be embarrassed shamed to not have the resources to do that to not have the support to do that to be stuck in a situation where you fear for your life even more if you were to do that to be able to have to risk so many women particularly minority women yes do not have the resources they do not have the access to resources sometimes they're not even they don't actually even understand that the thing that is happening to them is abuse. Yeah, and is actually a reportable thing. Is that they're capable of doing it. Yeah. Plus they can't risk, they might be at risk of further violence. Yep. They might be at risk of having to lose their jobs. They might be putting their children at risk. It's it's all very well and good basically for privileged people to say, mm. well, just report it. Yep. That's not how the real world works. Yeah. And it's, like, it's not even about, it's not even just that idea of who else you put at risk. It's also that fundamental idea of the psychological difficulty of a lot of people yeah. even once you when you say something out loud then it's real yeah. it's happened it's a it's there's a lot easier to yeah. push things down to and not have to admit it to anybody yeah and i mean there's so many reasons so many different and varied and every person's response to a particular situation it's going to be many and varied and different and there's yeah. no 
one way that yeah. you should expect anyone to react yeah. to a situation. And the other thing as well is people think of, well, you don't go and report it until it's something like violent rape. Mm. That's one thing, but there are so many levels of it. There, I actually found this a graph <laughs> about rape culture, which is actually really useful and it puts them into these categories. And of course, at the very top, in the top red triangle of this pyramid of rape culture is of course, violent assault, mm. violent rape, and assault. But of course, in the tiers below that, we've got consensual issues, withdrawn consent that's ignored, removal of condoms, inappropriate touching, being followed, being harassed, all of these things. Now, these things, if, okay, not every woman that I know has been raped or assaulted. Many of them, probably most of them have, but every woman, every woman that I know has been in the second tier, the second highest tier, which includes dosing, statutory rape, sexual coercion, groping, safe word violations, covert condom removal. Um, the next level down, catcalls, revenge porn, dick pics, groping, threats and stalking, upskirt photos. You know, these are the things, you're not going to go and report that, but these are the things that contribute to this problem that's so pervasive and these are the things that men don't get I think that like oh I'm but I'm a nice guy and I don't I would never assault a woman but it's like okay but I don't know if you're not going to do one of those other things you might very well be a nice guy but I have had some of these other things happen to me and I don't know if you're the type of guy maybe you wouldn't pull a knife out in an alley at me but you might withdraw a condom mm. you might be the type of guy who flies off the handle if I reject you you know when you play Russian roulette statistically you're not going to get the chamber with the bullet in it but there's always a chance that you're gonna get the chamber with the bullet in it mm. Men don't understand that every single time they have an encounter with a guy, they are playing that game of Russian roulette. Yeah. And women are thinking all the time about the responses that are going to get them out of that situation safely, even if it's a completely innocuous, normal conversation. Oh, sorry. We did go off on a... We knew that this was going to happen with this episode, that we would end up... It's going to be very hard a, to, to stay on track yeah. with a particular... But we'll get there. Yeah. So within this, basically, this is what Tarana Burke, this is her world that she's working in, okay? So to come to her biography now, finally, she was born on the 12th of September in 1973, which is a day before my birthday. So oh, there you go. You Except in... not that year. Yeah, that's 1973. <laughs> but she was born in the Bronx in New York to a working class family. So she grew up in a housing project, and it was in this housing project that she... And again, I feel like I need to say content warning, but yes, it was here that she, um, she did experience rape and sexual assault as both a child and a teenager, but she is a survivor of this assault. And this lit the fire for what would become her lifelong passion to support young women, particularly women of color. And that's what I want to emphasize is she's really passionate about helping women of color and minority women who survive sexual violence and abuse. Um, her mother was very supportive of this and encouraged her involvement in the community. And so when she was a teenager, she started to work 
with young girls in marginalized communities. And at 14, she was actually involved in the campaign around the Central Park Jogger case in 1989. Do you know about that case? I do, actually. Yes. So part of this case in 1989, there was five young black men and one Hispanic teenager who were all accused and convicted of a murder that they didn't commit. It was turned out later. So she was involved in that campaign as a 14-year-old. And this actually involved, um, it was against Donald Trump, actually, who at the time, who, (laughs) yeah, Donald Trump at the time called for a return of the death penalty for these young men. Uh, So (laughs) who put that douchebag in charge? (laughs) What the fuck was anyone thinking? Uh, Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) So during her time at college, she was first at Alabama State University and then she went to Auburn University. Um, She was very politically active, as I'm sure I don't know. Well, I mean, she was a teenager when she was doing all that shit, so. And she would organize protests and press conferences about social and racial justice issues. And then in the 1990s, she moved to Selma, Alabama, where she began work with um, the 21st Century Youth Leadership Movement, the National Voting Rights Museum, and the Black Belt Arts and Cultural Center. But soon she turned her attention to women of color and to working with survivors of sexual violence. And so in 1997, she was working with a group and she was at a youth camp. And here she met a young girl that she refers to as Heaven, okay? Um, Now, Heaven was just 13 years old, and she told Burke about the sexual abuse that she had suffered at the hands of her mother's boyfriend. Now, Burke didn't know what to say at the time, and she's been quite vocal about this experience and how it affected her. She says that she couldn't find the right words that would fully demonstrate her empathy, and that at the time that this happened, that this girl disclosed this to her, she basically just wasn't ready. Mm. And she regrets that she feels like she rejected her, and she never saw heaven again. So she said later that she wishes that she had simply told her me too uh, okay ah, so i see yeah I see where it comes from now and so this moment initiated a lot of reflection for burke who realized that she could work really meaningfully with other survivors she says and this is a quote when i started putting the pieces together of what helped me it was having other survivors empathize with me mm-hmm. and so this idea of empathy is hugely important in burke's work and so in 2003 she first developed the nonprofit program just be which was a program which is i suppose like a, a bit of a rite of passage program for young black girls aged 12 to 18 Burke believed that girls needed a different kind of attention to boys and she wanted to kind of develop a curriculum that would specifically address the concerns of girls and that would help them to understand really, really importantly. So promote firstly the wellness of minority girls, but she really, really wanted to help them develop a foundation of self-worth because this is in tech. She says that self-worth and self-esteem are often kind of put together but they're really different this is a really interesting idea this idea of self-worth and self-esteem as two different things so self-compassion and self self self-esteem are not the same thing no at all yeah so basically just having girls understand that they are worthy as human beings, just as they are. Because I guess self-esteem is something that's tied in with things like success, like you know, the confidence that is developed from being really smart or being yeah. pretty or, yeah. or doing something. Yeah, self-esteem is much more built around this idea of competitive comparison and it's about comparing yourself constantly to 
other people to see where you fit on this scale mm. in order to sort of build up this idea of self-esteem. Yeah. I think our self-esteem has a lot, like in a positive way, it's also a lot about confidence. It is, yeah. Your but ability lot, to believe that you're capable of doing things. But a lot of that is in is tied up with success and how successful yeah. you are at things. Whereas, of course, really self-worth and real that real idea of self-esteem is actually being able to still be okay with yourself when you fucking fail. Yeah. When you fail miserably and you don't achieve that thing and you're not successful and then still be able to go, yeah. you know what, I'm still a worthy human being. Yeah. I didn't achieve doing that thing. Hey, I failed. But I didn't also, have success, but I'm still great. I'm a worthy human being who understands that I'm not deserving of the bad things that are done to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, of saying I haven't deserved maybe the abuse that's happened to me because it's not about who I am, mm. you yeah. know, and that's yeah, really Yeah, when I important. say when I say fail, I'm not saying that. Getting- no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm talking much more in terms of like, you know, general sort of yeah. easy life is- stuff when you're kind of like, oh, you know, I wanted that job and I didn't get it. Yeah. I'm a failure. It's like, no, you're not. You know, you didn't get it. Be kind to yourself. Yeah. That's a different sort of thing. Yeah. That's a different yeah. thing to the self-worth and self-esteem that is tied up with assault and trauma, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But that's still about understanding who you are, what you're worthy of and how you should be treated and how you should treat yourself and how you should treat other people. I think that all comes from self-worth. So she started running workshops and she was running these with like high school age girls in Alabama. One of the things that she would do with these girls is ask them to fill in a worksheet noting three things that they hadn't known before they came, adding that if they needed help, they should write me too on the paper. And she quotes, doing it this way, that way, I wasn't like, raise your hand if you want a me too sheet, she says. We weren't asking people to out themselves. At the end of the event, she and her colleague collected the sheets. And she says, I'll never forget. There had been 30 or so girls in the room and we expected around five or six me too's. <gasps> oh no. There were 20. And we looked at these things and said, oh, shit. Yeah. And so I think this kind of alerted her to how pervasive the problem is. And she started looking for resources for girls, things like rape crisis centers. How accessible are they? How much information are these girls able to access? And um, she discovered that firstly, at the rape crisis centers, you actually need a referral from the police for them to be able to help you. Really? Yeah. So this but coming it's a crisis center. Exactly. If it's a crisis, what the fuck? Exactly. What? And this comes back to that what we were talking about before about why people don't report. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a too hard fucking basket. You have to jump through hoops first. Yeah. There's so many gatekeepers that have to sort of first of all validate whether or not your experience really is traumatic enough for you to need to go to the crisis center. Yeah. Oh fuck. Yeah. Yep. And she said that often the staff there were were often like white women who were very kind of clinical and couldn't really communicate with these girls in the ways that these girls needed Mm. the information. Like it was just a different, it's a different world. And there was, you, you know what I mean? Like it's not, accessible to them definitely and so she started to realize that she maybe needed to start providing these services herself and so she started to think what would she have needed at that age at 13 or 14 what was it that she really needed to hear she knew she needed to communicate with these girls in a way that they could relate to something similar to just be that would use her story to develop empathy so she sent an email to a girlfriend saying what do you think about me too and she, I think they just kind of knew it was powerful. 
And so Burke knew that this was the work that she needed to do. She felt like she'd been called to this work. But when she says that, and she is a, a Christian woman, she talks about this a lot. I've, I've listened to a lot of interviews, read a lot of interviews with her. And I do want to say that, yes, I am using a lot of her words from these interviews, but we don't have access. To, if we had access to Tarana Burke to interview her, that oh, would be amazing. Bloody but, hell, that'd be great. <laughs> I will post a bunch of links to all of these interviews so that you can listen to them for yourself. But she says that while she felt this kind of calling to do this work, she also felt very unqualified to do this work. Um, and so she went to professionals at first feeling like she wasn't good enough, she wasn't adequate enough, that she didn't know what she was doing. But this story about heaven kept coming back to her, this little 13-year-old girl. And so despite the fact that she was starting to feel like have success and impact on other girls' lives, she kept coming back to this story. And so after, you know, her and her friend had, talk about, had talked about the name Me Too, she wrote down Heaven's Story and she realised that Me Too was about empathy and using the power of empathy to build up another person. And this, I think, is also kind of indicative about how important language is. For example, in speaking with other survivors, as she, as she said, you know, hearing other survivors' stories and having that empathy was so important for her. She realized the significance of the word survivor. You know, up until then, she had thought of herself and had been using the word victim. Victim, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just changing that language from victim to survivor, she said, opened the pathway for her own healing to begin. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that she wanted to share with these girls is the power of language in helping you to be able to start your own healing journey. So a lot of this is about education. Burke says that sexual violence is usually caused by someone the women know. Mm -hmm. And so people should be educated from a young age that they have the right to say no to sexual contact from any person, even after repeat solicitations, even if it's an authority, even if it's a spouse, and they need to be educated about how to report if they need to. So to help this moving along, she started a MySpace page, which I mean, tells us this the is, age. This is early this. thousands, yep. isn't it? Yeah. Um, yep. And soon this had a huge number of followers, which really helped the movement grow. She got a grant for the movement. Um, and she also had a designer donate a thousand Me Too t-shirts and Burke still wears hers. Oh, very nice. So that's good. So on the word Me Too, I've just got a quote about what it meant to her then, because we're about to move into what it has become. Yeah. So she says, on the one side, it's a bold declarative statement that says, I'm not ashamed and I'm not alone. On the other side, it's a statement from survivor to survivor that says, I see you, I hear you, I understand you, and I'm here for you, or I get it. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's really interesting because that's that's something that, you know, when you're talking before about it being where it had come from, from that story with heaven and about being that statement of empathy, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, because it has become this thing that I have been reading as like a, a bold mm. declarative statement, as she says, like that me too, like, yeah. you know, those like the rallying voices. Yeah. And that's interesting because when I first saw the hashtag come up in October last year, I did read it as an empathy, like, oh, yeah, that's happened to me as well. It was like a groundswell of – so I guess that's somewhere halfway between that empathy, survivor to survivor empathy, and that declarative me too, you know. Yeah. I read it somewhere in the middle there, mm. I think, which is interesting. I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah, it's a, there's a shift. There's a mm. difference. Oh, I will just say quickly that in between this, so in 2008, she moved to Philadelphia and she started working there. And she's also since been like a consultant for the film Selma. 
about the 1965 Selma to Montgomery voting rights marches. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of other things about her career that have happened since then, but I think we should come to what happened last year. Sure. When the storm broke. Let's do it. And the floodgates, they fucking opened. Like, <laughs> they really opened. So, of course, I think we all know what happened last year. Harvey Weinstein happened. It had been happening for a long time. Yes. Yes, he had. (laughs) But I guess he was finally called out properly. Finally called out on that. People finally started actually listening to Survivors. And it's interesting because Harvey, and again, sorry, I'm getting a little bit off track. But like he was Is this a shower argument? (laughs) Yeah. I have so many of those. How many of these men had come before Harvey? Why was it Harvey Weinstein who was the one that was the tipping point? Oh, my God, Hollywood as an industry is riddled with these stories from way back in the beginning. Actually, maybe I know why it was that Harvey Weinstein was the tipping point. It has nothing to do with Harvey Weinstein. In fact, maybe it has to do with what happened next. Yeah. In October 2017, just after the Harvey Weinstein allegations broke, Alyssa Milano tweeted. (laughs) Okay. Again, this is a pretty famous story in the Me Too history, and it will go down in history, I suppose. So actually, Alyssa Milano, who's, of course, the famous actress from Charmed and, you know, Who's the Boss? I really, it's Charmed. That that matters. Yeah. I had a big crush (laughs) on her in Charmed. Anyway, her friend, Charles Clymer, sent her a screenshot reading, suggested by a friend, if all the women who have been sexually assaulted or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And to which Milano thought, I thought, this is a quote, I thought, you know what, this is an amazing way to get some idea of the magnitude of how big this problem is. It was also a way to get the focus off these horrible men and to put the focus back on the victims and survivors. And so if you didn't know, Alyssa Milano's tweet fucking blew up. Mm. Within just 24 hours, 40,000 people had responded to Milano's tweet and 12 million people, 12 million people had used the hashtag in 24 hours. It's a lot of people. 12 million people. That's so many people. That's so many people. So Milano apparently didn't know about Burke's original use of the phrase, but she acknowledged it as soon as she was made aware, saying she tweeted, I was just made aware of an earlier Me Too movement and the origin story is equal parts heartbreaking and inspiring. So we hardly need, I think everybody knows, like I said, we're already talking to the converted. You guys know about Me Too. We know that it's become since synonymous with calling out sexual assault and harassment through social media. And actually the way that it's sort of become now is it's it's taken on a, a kind of focus of sexual harassment, particularly in the workplace. Um, it is broader than that, but I think the, the focus has shifted to this. So this is partly, though, I think why the movement has been kind of criticised a little bit. Some of the criticism about it is that it has an undefined or ununified focus. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Burke's Me Too has a, has has a, very, a very specific, specific focus, yeah, specific um, but it has broadened since then. It's become something quite different, and we'll talk about that now. The other thing that has happened, of course, is Alyssa Milano being a very powerful, well, you know, powerful compared to the rest of us, yeah. um, white woman, means that this got a lot more traction than it than, than I mean had, than previously. it had. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. Burke had been using this this phrase for eleven years. And of course, somebody with the amount of social like that celebrity yeah. was the one who kind of 
actually pushed open the yeah. the floodgates. So there's been a lot of issues surrounding the whitewashing of the movement and the fact that it's kind of ignored the contributions of women of colour that have come before it. And that's also why I really wanted to focus on uh, Tarana Burke because she is the you know, the foundation of this. Mm. So when Burke first heard about the use of the hashtag, she was honestly a little bit like, oh, fuck, at first. (laughs) But she says she knew she needed to jump in quick, firstly, because she was aware that there was a risk that her own work would be erased. Yeah. She didn't realise it was going viral. And I I think that she was also, you know... She says that she wasn't really active on Twitter and so she didn't really know how these things kind of work. Yeah. You know, she didn't quite understand the magnitude at yep. first of, of what had happened. Which um, is understandable because I don't. I'm, I don't use these things. Yeah. I'd be like, what? <laughs> I don't happened? know what you're talking about. And so I think it, and it happened so quickly as well. And she was actually gearing up for a relaunch like she was pushing for so her organization was gearing up for a relaunch in april for sexual assault awareness month and so her energy had been concentrated there and she also didn't want people to get the two movements mixed up Mm. it was also she noticed being used again like i said by predominantly by white women and she was worried that as a black woman her work would be diminished as i said so and look this happens all the time oh yeah and it's really important that we remember that (laughs) i think as we're having this conversation is it's really important to remember that for somebody else's benefit to somebody else's detriment absolutely yeah 100 but then also she was concerned and this comes from a lot of her work her background in rape crisis and sexual assault counseling that there was a lot of people disclosing their trauma online right and she knew the ramifications for disclosure like what can happen when a small group of women start sharing their stories and here there were like literally thousands and thousands of people doing it all online and online there aren't those same safeguards in place there's no counseling in place there's no direction of telling people where to go for resources again it's shouting into the void Mm. one more time and also people get really emotional like it's very triggering for people like hugely i think for a lot of women either engaging in me too brought up a lot of emotional weight or a lot of memories that they didn't really want you know Mm. maybe don't know how to deal with very well or they had to disengage completely disengage because it was too difficult and she says social media is not a safe space i thought this is going to be a fucking disaster yeah and so this is initially i think why she really wanted to step in because she knew that she could be of service in this arena she wanted to join the conversation lead people to the right resources direct people and help them understand what's happening why it's happening, the reasons why women are feeling this way, and the fact that empathy and solidarity need to become an integral part of the movement. And so that's how I think she she first wanted to get involved. And I think then she also kind of maybe realised that this is an opportunity to help broaden her own work and support people. And so she she jumped on board. She tweeted saying, it made my heart swell to see women using this idea, one that we call empowerment through empathy, to not only show the world how widespread and pervasive sexual violence is, but also to let other survivors know that they are not alone. Hashtag me too. She also felt that it was important that her community understood where she stood in it, that they knew that she was aware of it. And she also released a video statement online about it as well. And so then mainstream media suddenly started to recognize her 
as the origin of Me Too. And Milano did as well. Like, mm. Milano was very quick to say, oh, you know, I didn't yeah. make this up. Yeah. This is um, Tarana Burke's work. So since then, the Me Too movement has evolved. So Milano, along with a lot of other Hollywood heavyweights, you know, women like Reese Witherspoon and... Yeah, there's there so many. I'm not going to list them all. You know, you know who they all are. I know who some of them are. You know me. I don't know who any celebrity is. <laughs> Quite often somebody would mention a celebrity who's apparently very famous and I'll be like, mm-hmm. I don't know who that who? is. Um, I don't know anything about popular culture beyond right. like 2006. That's all right. We'll just I'll just tell you that a bunch of them have all since kind of started another movement called Times Up, which is about raising awareness of sexual abuse, more specifically on workplace harassment, and it aims to lobby as well as raise funds for victims who can't afford legal help. But I want to bring it back to Me Too and to Burke's work. So Burke kind of found herself, I suppose, as this leader of a movement that was suddenly huge okay, suddenly exploded like so much bigger than you yeah. could have that she could probably have ever possibly imagined and that also had been taken into all of these new contexts yeah that she was not kind of that's not where her work had been in the past and so empathy remains an integral part of the movement but it also i think now has a little bit more of a focus on dealing with perpetrators so calling out perpetrators, educating them and trying to stop cycles of abuse. Burke also wants it to become a starting point for women to access healing and to understand that there are many avenues to healing. Mm. You know, there's not, like we were saying before, there's not just one path. Mm. There's not one response. There's not one reaction. There's not one way of dealing with things. Yeah. Yeah. But she wants there to be an online space and an online community for support where women are active, where things are happening, where work is being done, but where women can go to help them find the resources that they need to start their own path to healing. So Burke states that the current purpose of the movement is to give people the resources to have access to healing and advocates for changes to laws and policies. Um, She wants to create access to tools to create healing particularly for those who don't have access to more traditional or mainstream, you know, avenues. So Burke has highlighted um, some of the goals, which include processing all untested rape kits. There are a few kind of charities and organizations devoted to trying to end the backlog of rape kits, but the fact that they exist after women have to go through the trauma of having them taken in the first place is pretty disgusting. Re-examining local school policies, improving the vetting of teachers, updating sexual harassment policies. Um, She's also called for all professionals who work with children to be fingerprinted and subjected to a background check before being cleared to start work. And she advocates for sex education that teaches kids to report predatory behavior. Finally, she also supports the Me Too bill in US Congress, which would remove the requirement that staffers of the federal government go through months of cooling off before being allowed to file a complaint against a congressperson. What? Yes. Cooling off. Cooling off. Are you sure you want to make that complaint? Are you sure you don't want to just think about that for a little while? What the fuck? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's <laughs> just... This is why this episode's so hard. <laughs> Okay. Milano, meanwhile, has described the reach of Me Too as helping society understand the magnitude of the problem. And it's a standing in solidarity to all of those who have been hurt. Okay. So (laughs) millions of women from around the world have started using the phrase. Huge, broad spectrum of representation now. But again, it's really important. Burke has spoken about this about not forgetting that this movement began with marginalized communities mm. and that it's really, really, really important 
to have those communities at the center of this movement because so Tarana Burke herself has said that not everyone can say me too and like we were saying before this is all tied up with privilege and power and access and education because sexual violence occurs at higher rates where there are greater structural and cultural barriers to gender equality. And these barriers include social norms, policies, and systems that limit women's access to equal treatment and opportunities and can exist across government policy, the legal system, education, in the workplace, and in healthcare settings. As we were saying in our conversation before we started about Burke, Many women don't have the ability to access or to claim Me Too. Many women can't afford the risks, particularly if they're from lower socioeconomic situations and are already at a higher risk of sexual violence, but also at a higher risk if they disclose. They can't risk losing work. They can't risk the safety of their their children. They may not have anywhere to go. And so, according to Burke, when marginalized communities, when women of color, LGBTQI people, disabled people are not at the center of these discussions, they get lost. They become further marginalized. She says, trickle down doesn't work. The goodness won't fall down on them. We have to build up. Mm. So, (laughs) oh, yeah. I've got so much. I've got stats. I've got fucking everything. I don't know where we want to go from here, but like, That's kind of where we are now, I guess. But one of the other big things I think that's come out of, that came out of both Burke and Milano have stated this, and this is something that's occurring in Australia right now that's really important, is (laughs) the role of men Mm. in this. Mm -hmm. Milano has stated that the success of Me Too will require men to take a stand against behaviour that objectifies women and Burke advises men talk to each other about consent, call out demeaning behaviour when they see it and try to listen to victims when they tell their stories. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last week or two and getting really upset about and talking with to Brendan, my partner, about... Partner and sound guy. Partner and sound guy, Brendan... Because this is something that's really hard because it's it fucking sucks that, like, <laughs> the onus is on women to fix all these problems and to speak out. And yet when we do, there is such a big percentage of men who just shut off to the conversation and they won't listen to it unless it comes from other men. And so it sucks Like, women's voices are finally being heard. Like we said, this has been a rallying cry across the world millions and millions and millions of women's voices are suddenly have swollen in this huge fucking tsunami of anger and grief and trauma. And yet, as we get our voices, it's like also those voices, again, are only speaking to the converted. Mm. And that if a certain percentage of men are ever, ever going to listen... They will only listen to women if they hear it from a man first. And it is important for men to become involved in this, to call out behaviour, to... uh, Sorry, I get really upset about this. But, like, this is the whole thing about good men, right? You know, good men, oh, but I would never hurt a woman. That's great. I know a lot of good men. I am related to a lot of good men. I'm dating a good man. But... To me, like, I, I could, 
if they were to call themselves feminists but didn't speak out, but didn't shut down their male friends when they hear them or that locker room banter about like or, you know, slut-shaming, objectifying women, all of those little things that contribute to rape culture, that contribute to this idea of women being objectified and, and as possessions of men, that they're worthy of this. You know, this whole fucking Toronto recently, that guy drove down 10 people because he felt like he was owed sex because he was angry at the world because he was involuntarily celibate. He drove down 10 people. That shit happens because the way that our culture teaches men to see women is best case scenario as prizes for attainment. Here's your reward for your hard work. You get the girl at the end of the movie. That's rape culture. And if men don't start calling out other men, then I don't know that certain men will ever listen to women. And that sucks. And I don't know what to do about it. So I just want to quote, and I've, I've been quoting a lot in this episode, but that's because I think there's a lot of women who are very articulate about this issue and I feel like I get so angry you can't articulate it yourself and so I'm just going to fall back on quotes quite often because mm. I come across them like yes that says the thing that I, <laughs> I'm I trying to say. say so this is from Jane Gilmore in the Sydney Morning Herald in the aftermath of um, Eurydice Dixon and she said every time we have another vigil or an, another memorial thousands of women turn up and they outnumber the men by about 10 to 1 because when men kill women it's a women's issue women are told they are both the problem and the solution to men's violence when the truth is they are neither of these things men's violence is a men's issue until men take responsibility for themselves and the few violent men among them Women will continue to go to vigils for another murdered woman and know our grief and rage is never going to be enough to prevent the next one. And then Clementine Ford, also from the Sydney Morning Herald, says, it isn't up to women to modify our behaviour in order to prevent violence from being enacted against us. It's up to society to work together to dismantle misogyny and the particular kind of male rage that informs these acts of aggression. And I have another quote from her as well, from an article called Don't Let Eurydice Dixon's Death Be a Cautionary Tale, which I do recommend reading because this is about that whole not all men, like, you know, the way that men are like, oh, but I'm not, why don't you want to I'm talk to me? Problem. I'm not the problem. Well, you know what? I'm not the problem either. Me, yeah. wa me walking home from the train station in the dark isn't the problem either, honey. If you're not the problem, neither am I. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. If I have to take responsibility for not being the problem, maybe you have to take maybe responsibility take for not being the problem too. Yeah. She says, The language used towards women when we exercise caution is contradictory at best and disdainful and mocking at worst. Exercise caution, but stop being so paranoid. Be prepared for danger, but don't treat individual men like they may be a threat to you. Don't put yourself in harm's way, but quit acting hysterical about every little shadow that crosses your path. Be wary of strange men, but don't you dare be wary of me. It's little wonder we've learned to question our own instincts and sense of personal risk. How can we possibly be expected to guard against threats when we're straining so hard to even see them under the dim glow of the gaslights? Hmm. <laughs> She's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I think this conversation's worn you down. So <laughs> we'll bring it to a close. But I do... 
This has been an episode of Lauren talking and Alicia being incapable of speech. <laughs> so we'll start to to wrap up because it is a this is a hard yeah. episode. I made you do it though. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I already went through this process like when I was staring blankly at my computer screen for the last three or four nights in a row going, I can't do this anymore. And saying to Brendan, I can't do it. Can you just take my computer away? I can't read. But really though, I had a few times I was just staring at the wall and I was like, I can't read. I can't read this anymore. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. I think I can only talk about it because I've had a little while of, of processing and preparing and like rehearsing, you know, like, <laughs> Because I couldn't have done this raw. Mm. But I will end on a few highs. Okay. So um, I just want to point out that in Australia, really, really, really recently, in just the last couple of days, the Turnbull government is funding a new national inquiry into sexual harassment in Australian workplaces. It's going to be run by the Australian Human Rights Commission, and it is actually in response to Me Too. So that's good. So the Minister for Women, Kelly O'Dwyer, confirmed on Wednesday that the government would provide fi- – oh, that would be last Wednesday by the time this comes out – that the government will provide $500,000 towards the inquiry to be run by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins. So I also appreciate that there's two women <laughs> who are yeah. <laughs> on that. I just wanted to and point that out. rather than Tony Abbott being the Minister for Women? Yeah. Yeah, yeah remember when that remember happened? When oh, that was, remember when that total <laughs> misogynist was the Minister for Women? Can we not remember that? that? Remember I'm pretty sure I've blocked that out of my memory. (laughs) Anyway, back to Tarana Burke, ending on a high note, as I said with Tarana Burke. She recently received the 2018 Prize for Courage from the Ryden Hour Prizes, which is awarded to individuals who demonstrate courageous defense of the public interest and commitment to social justice. She's currently... That's a very... That's a rather awesome prize. It is such a good prize. (laughs) Really good prize. I like that prize a lot. She's also the, currently the Senior Director at Girls for Gender Equality, where she continues to run workshops to help improve policies at schools, workplaces, and to help victims not blame themselves for sexual violence. And, of course, she was listed as one of the silence breakers in Time Magazine's People of the Year oh. for 2017. So she's a silence breaker, Time Person of the Year, though I will say she was there was a bit of uproar because she wasn't actually included in the cover. She was inside oh, the about, magazine. Did you know what I was about to ask about the cover? Just then mm. I was about to say, but she wasn't on the cover, was she? She wasn't yeah. on the cover. There was a group of women on the cover, but it didn't include all of the silence mm. breakers. And there were a lot of people who were upset about the fact that Tarana did not make the cover. And I think rightfully so, because she was like the key yeah. foundational silence breaker. Yeah, been working so, on that for a long time. Yeah, I think mm. she should. She definitely should have been on that cover. Time magazine, of course, did highlight the work of a lot of important women in the movement, and she was included in that. And just to end on a on a proper proper high note, Tarana Burke, for anyone who doesn't know, also has a fashion blog called She Slays. Ooh. She models herself. Oh, good. And on the blog, the um, about the blog reads. Now, this is a manifestation of my lifelong fascination with fashion and my passion for shopping and saving. Everyday women just like me can have the closet of their dreams with a little creativity, tenacity, and sense of self. I don't think there is anything wrong with a little flair for the dramatic. Even if you have an hour-long commute to work every day, make the any path you walk your runway and slay. So <laughs> that's, that's also a really fun side to Tarana Burke that you should check out her website. She slays. It's like, not all just. It's not all about horrific 
<laughs> horrific trauma. Yeah, great. And she does. She models all of the clothes herself. Cool. Um, I, I don't think it's been updated since Me Too kind of exploded, but she's probably she's busy. busy. <laughs> she's busy. But I think that that's a really cool like element of her personality as well. Like she's very outspoken, really great. If you have the opportunity to listen to her interviews and I will post a bunch of links, um, but I do recommend listening to an interview on a podcast called The Call with Erica Williams Simon. It's a fabulous conversation that they have about, you know, her history, her background and the Me Too movement. She's a really engaging speaker and so incredible. Like what a, what an incredible, amazing woman to take, her own trauma and turn it into something so important and powerful and amazing. Maybe one day we could speak to her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dreams, oh my god. Aspirations. Because like it would have, it would be amazing to be able to interview her. But this you is know. the interesting thing about all the women that we talk about in contemporaneity is like yeah. it's, you know, we want to talk about these women, but we don't have access to we these women. We don't have access to them. <laughs> We've been so lucky to be able to interview the women that we have thus yeah. far. So, you know, sometimes we'll keep we trying. Just, sometimes <laughs> we just have to go at ourselves. <laughs> um so that's been a hard one. Do you have any final comments? I mean, I've got more stats if you want them, but I don't think I'm no, going to No, I them don't up. want them. Uh, look at me. Do I look like I've got anything no. to say? No. No, <laughs> so you don't. have anything to say. Yeah. Well, in that case, thank you for coming with us on what has not been the most upbeat or... Got, oh. Look, yeah, we got quite serious in this one. Yeah. But I think we really needed to vent our rage. I think I I did venting and you did that. It's so funny because I was like, I really want to do this episode because I've got so much to say. But then I've just like, (laughs) haven't been able to say a thing. I've just been overcome. And I mean, this is what happens, isn't it? You either shut down or you... Or you rage. You rage. (laughs) Those are your options. You rage or you shut down. There are more options than that, people. There are many, many options. Yeah. And I will. I will post a bunch of links if you want to learn more about the movement if you want to become involved in the movement check out the links in the show notes there's going to be a lot of them but they are all important i think if you're in australia and you feel like you do need crisis support please call lifeline it's 13 11 14 i'm sure every country has their own version of lifeline but we are in australia so that's what we can refer people to and as you said we're going to put a bunch of of links up and we will be back again in another fortnight with possibly some more upbeat material yeah, hopefully hopefully we'll get a few more laughs out of it next time we'll purposefully pick someone a little bit more we'll pick someone outrageous like, yeah we'll pick someone like outrageously hilarious yeah yeah yep. it'll be all good times change the tone a bit so you know come back to us we'll, we we promise you more lols in the future and in the meantime of course you can follow us on twitter and uh, we are at Deviant Women. Yeah. And um, we're also on Instagram and Facebook with the same. If you want to support the show, please jump on Patreon. For just $2 a week, you can get access to extra episode contents. We're going to be posting some more interview content very, very shortly. And, and I'm also contemplating making some claymation at some point. When your thesis is submitted. Oh, God, I'm not making claymation, claymation before my thesis. Are you <laughs> think I'm mad? Afterwards. <laughs> And of course, as well, if you would like to buy any of our spectacular merch, you can find us on Etsy. Final thank yous to India Hui for the music and to Brendan Davies for the sound. And hopefully we will catch you all next time. (laughs) Thank you. See ya. Bye.